Meyer. Welcome to the Conversation Podcast. Um, this week we get to hear from Anna Kitko, who is our friendly neighborhood apologist. You guys know Anna. She's a frequent guest here. Um, what you may not know is that she was raised Lutheran and is uh, really passionate about some of the history that marked the Reformers. And so when I asked her if she could spend some time talking about Martin Luther and the Reformation, um, she 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 like almost leapt through the phone. She was so eager to come and do it. So speaking of that eagerness, this one went a bit long. So what we're going to do is break this up in two parts. Um, but trust me, uh, what Anna has to say is in, uh, honestly, uh, Josh and I were enthralled <laughs> listening to her share parts of this history. She's so passionate about it and the history is so, so rich. So we'll get to spend several minutes hearing from Anna Kitko. Uh, we'll hit pause at one point and then we'll come back next week for the second part of that. Here's part one with Anna Kitko. Well, all right. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the podcast yet again. And I have, for this season, my co-host here with me, Josh Armstrong. Hey, Josh. Hello, Aaron. And a frequent and favorite guest on our podcast here, Aww. Anna Kitko. What's up, boss? <laughs> I hate it when people call me that. I know. I see you cringe, and I kind of—it's it's fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, I know. The more people find out I hate it, the more I hear it, which makes you me that feel more than reverend, don't you? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I do. No, I do hate it more than reverend. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we <laughs> uh, have Anna here to talk to us about a little, no, a big slice of Christian history. Broadly speaking, the Reformation. And uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. But first, uh, Anna, you, uh, why don't you tell us what you're excited about what's going on with Ratio Christi right now? Maybe a lot, of, a lot of us are aware of that ministry and what's going on and praying for and excited about the things that are happening with your work as an apologist. Do you want, you want to give us a, an update on how things are going? Yeah, things are going, they're nuts. We're, our students are just on fire and I have more students than we've, we've had ever in the history of the chapter. Wow. So that's really exciting. And they're like, I told them, I, I want you guys to take ownership of the chapter. What do you need? And they're like, well, come on and just join our Zoom session. We're already forming committees on how we're, I was like, what, what? Wow. So yeah, they're going nuts. I've, we've got 10 officers. I have four interns this year, um, two potential new staff. So wow. that'll be exciting. And then um, they're taking the, the brunt of the curriculum writing. So we need to be in serious prayer over anticipating mm. the needs of the incoming freshmen because there's, you know, how can you know? We're just reliant right. completely on the spirit on that one. So mm-hmm. and for those, for those that don't know, Rasho Christie does what? Rasho Christie is an apologetics ministry teaching the scientific, philosophical, and historical reasons for believing Jesus Christ's message that he really is the Messiah and that there are good reasons to ask questions and to pursue truth because Yahweh doesn't flee scrutiny because he is the truth. Sounds like you said that more than one time. I mean, it's almost as though I've said that before. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) They get asked a lot. Rasha Christi means reason of Christ in Latin. Yes. So we like to use fancy Latin terms because it impresses intellectuals and we're constantly trying to do that. But you don't have to be an intellectual to join. Yes. So that's what Anna does. And she's real smart. But we are kind of asked Anna to come and talk about this in particular because um, she's also real Lutheran. Yeah. Um, and Martin Luther, of course, a central figure in Reformation. Tell us about your background growing up and how, how you about how you're a Lutheran girl, and then we'll then we'll jump into the history. Sure thing. So I was raised by a Lutheran mom who goes all the way back many, many, many generations, um, fluent in German. Um, my father was charismatic in Calvary Chapel Vineyard circles. Mm-hmm. Fell in love with my mom tried to impress her by learning German and then <laughs> fell in love with Lutheran theology because he really felt like it was like a, a well-rounded theology and he's kind of an intellectual. He likes to sit on that side of things. And so he kind of hit the books and he loves history. And then, so by the time I was born, we were in a Lutheran church and um, my father taught theology and church history and we're really big on um, the church history aspect. So the Lutherans mm-hmm. are big on explaining what happened and why, why we're all still hung up on the Reformation, which you'll notice I'm like, as soon as you 
contacted me and said, would you consider talking about the Reformation? And I about, you know, screamed and, and jumped in my office and like, are you sure? Are you sure you want this person talking about the Reformation? I have a Martin Luther Lego figurine in my office. Um, that's how nerdy I am about this. But functionally speaking, the Lutherans are still hung up on the, the 16th century and what happened because the Lutherans never wanted to leave Roman Catholicism. They just wanted to reform it. And so church history is really important and theology is really important. And you'll find that we, we regularly couch terminology in um, Catholic terms because we're constantly responding mm. to what was going on there. And so there's a, there's a lot of comfort. And where I'm from, um, there really isn't another denominational framework. If you are Protestant, you are Lutheran. Um, and if you are not Protestant, you are Roman Catholic specifically. So I, I had never encountered a Baptist church until I was 16, mm. for example. Wow. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Ambition. Ambition. My parents do, um, and I, I did a lot of work in Eastern Germany clearing out Martin Luther's family home, his attic, and doing rebuilding the churches there in Eisleben. So there are four churches downtown that were completely obliterated by the communists. Um, trying to destroy us whatever they could of Christianity and their 12th century. I mean, we're talking. This is where this is where Luther was leading mass and um, where he botched the transubstantiation aspect to his first communion because he was so nervous. I mean, like I got to take mm-hmm. care of all of that in the altar, and you, I got to clean out the altar where the the bones of the saint that everybody forgot who it is because the communists controlled the area and nobody's around anymore to be able to tell you. You know, you oh, had to wow. take out the human bones and then clean out the drawer and put it back because that was in back then and oh yeah wow really cool experiences but you know staunchly lutheran lutheran background so yeah. that's where i'm yes that's, where I come. that's I'll my sk- only two german I'll phrases sk- i got them out. i was like are you gonna keep doing <laughs> that yes. i'll get seischnitz that's my favorite i'll get seischnitz that's a um, I, I wanted to ask more you said that lutherans are still hung up on the reformation and then is it like does the typical lutheran is the idea that hey the goal is to get back to a a catholic truly catholic catholic meaning universal not roman catholic to one universal church once again like that's in the heart of a lutheran still for that the Kind of not really, because the the universal aspect is in the shared orthodoxy, not in that everybody has to look the same. Mm. Because as you know, with the beginning of the Reformation, kind of what Martin Luther was getting back to was um, what the monastic orders had preserved all the way through the Dark Ages. And that was that liberty aspect and the focus aspect and the preservation of the ancient things. And so by the time we get to Roman Catholicism formally and all of the dogmas coming down and the the really odd ones like papal infallibility and like indulgences, these are in the 13th and 14th centuries. I'm going to pause. We're going to go back. We'll go back and okay. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go through we'll this. We'll describe those things. Yes, in, in I, prom- I promise yes. I'll explain this because those are really important to understand <laughs> yes, the context. But for the, for the Lutherans, it's more like we have lost traditions of the church that were extremely valuable when we dispensed with everything having to do with papists, right? Papists being anybody who, who affirms a Roman Catholic Pope as authoritative mm-hmm. in their life. And so because the Reformation stripped from the history of the church and Protestant denominations in particular, a lot of the positive elements to the traditions that had been handed down from the apostles, we lost all of these wonderful things that are very informative that we didn't need to really lose because it didn't belong to anybody who was a coercive um, pope representative anyway. Oh, I so see. it's it, it was an overreaction as a far as the baby Lutherans are with concerned. The bathwater stuff. Correct. Correct. And then it gets complicated because modern Lutheranism is not necessarily historical Lutheranism. So you're not always going to get all this church history when you walk in it depends on the denominational well framework. it's like any other denomination there's all these different versions of lutherans exactly. out there and exactly but okay. you'll find that the first thing that comes up when you're talking to a to a lutheran that's that's been raised in in that framework um and in a substantial way and that's i'm not saying that to detract from other ones but sometimes american lutheranism you don't get all the history mm-hmm. um that they go straight to history. And the reason why is because all of the context for being able to understand them and why they're talking about serious the seriousness of whatever the discussion is theologically is because they're going back to why it was something that we should have preserved. Mm. It's not something we should have lost that was too important. Interesting. Yep. Okay. Well, all right, my Lutheran friend. Give us a crash course here, like broad strokes. Okay. What what was the Reformation? When was the Reformation? What was it? Yes. What led up to it? Like, yes. just give us the 
the flyover. So beginning in Genesis one. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, so let's start. We'll we'll start really quickly just so that we can understand the context and the 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 frustration. Let's just say the 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 social setting for what happened with the Reformation. Um, we have the apostles, right? Jesus ascends to heaven. We start moving into focusing on the different areas where the apostles set up all the different churches. And they all form little cavities of Christendom that begin to expand and they begin to talk to one another. And over the course of the years after the apostles, the initial years after the apostles, basically the first 300, you have small denominations. Mm -hmm. You have this, the Galatian presence, you have the Corinthian presence, and they all have things that they're concerned with mm -hmm. as individuals, and they're doing their own writing, and they're responding to Rome. At the same time, we have Rome collapsing. Mm -hmm. The Roman Empire is on its way out. Functionally speaking, we can say that the, the, the end we can call functionally around 500. Okay. So it's coming. And the, the different edges of the empire where Christianity is flourishing is also where all of the barbarians are coming in. Mm. And because of that, and because the leaders in the area ultimately become the Christians and the bishops who are heading these churches, the natural sway is that the people of God start looking to them for their political mm. choices. Mm -hmm. How are we supposed to respond to this? What are, how much are we supposed to press back to Rome? Because at this point we've had the Pax Romana, which means mm -hmm. Roman peace, everything, everybody can walk around and not worry about it. We can still have um, Christian persecution is punctuated, meaning it happens in doses based upon the personality of the emperor as opposed to empire-wide forever mm. persecution. Yeah. Um, and so things are developing and the bishops are becoming political. So let me just restate that in the sentence and see if we if it if I'm right. So um, as things started to fracture a bit in the Roman Empire, Christianity was emerging and on the fringes of of the Roman Empire where barbarians were coming in, Christians were quite prominent and so they were looked to for leadership more broadly than just mm -hmm. spiritual leadership. Yep, yep, because you needed on-the-ground responses. Yeah, um, the Roman Empire was no, what do exactly, we do? And the Roman Empire wasn't necessarily responding very quickly anymore because they're collapsing right. as an infrastructure. And yes. so the Christians are becoming the infrastructure out of necessity. And they were always overstretched. So. Oh my gosh, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, it was a regular problem. So by the time we get to the early 300s, we get Constantine, and everybody knows Constantine, he's famous, and that's because mm -hmm. his concern was, hey, the infrastructure's crumbling, this is a problem. And by that time, Christianity was well known enough that the theology, Christian theology was beginning to be conflated with social expectations. So when riots were erupting in Rome and then in Constantinople when he moves the capital there, um, his response is get all the bishops together. You're going to answer this theologically and then we are going to make that the state's position on how to handle this. So it's the first time in the history of the church in which Christianity becomes state-oriented and enforced. Yeah. So we talk about the separation of church and state. This is the merger of church yes, and state. Yes, and it's all just this natural flow. Nobody made a major decision. It mm. just happened to be this is how people functioned. And all the way through, you have this discussion of should we really be doing this? Oh, really? Oh, it's huge. This is, and this is a big theme that I will keep pressing because I think it's really important for us to understand for now. Mm. Um, because it, it's always that discussion. The Lord Jesus made a distinction between Caesar and himself. Mm -hmm. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's mm -hmm. and to, to God that which is God's. But he made it predicated on the image on the coin. Mm -hmm. And the assumption then is to then say to yourself, well, then what, by, what object bears the image of Yahweh? Mm -hmm. And the conclusion, of course, is us. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's this hard distinction where Jesus didn't have to make that distinction right. originally. So there, there's the discussion. Are we really doing this correctly? And then what's the natural need? Well, we have to need, meet the needs of the people. So we're going right. to continue. All right. right. And with human, um, with human uh, responsibilities to that end, there's also corruption starts creeping well, in. Well, people aren't and, inclined to say, here's power and influence. Would you like to give it back? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And then do you, do you start only hiring for help your family members? Because they'll do what you say. So then nepotism becomes a problem. And now we start having the process of patriarchs, which were the heads of these major churches. Um, they then start having like dynastic things, like their kid inherits the bishop. 
mm-hmm. position as opposed to it's an election, things like mm-hmm. that. So all these things are interweaving. Then it becomes a state religion, Christianity in 380 with Constantine. And that kind of slows everything down, but it also means the state is enforcing things and it sets a precedent then mm-hmm. as the empire continues to crumble and as people come to power. Well, if you're a Christian emperor, then you also control the people. And so there's a tendency toward Christianity becoming more and more present in the minds of the people as the political orientation, the political driver behind making decisions on who to go to war with, what Mm -hmm. to do when barbarians come in, where to set boundaries, how to set boundaries, when to send people to jail, when to murder people, when to set them out outside of the the empire, things like that. So I have a question. Yes. You're talking about, again, the kind of the merger of church and state. gradually and a little bit unofficially and i I think we assume that the church was looking to the state to get power but it sounds like you're saying there was a lot of the reverse happening as well that the state was in relative disarray oh very much and saying these people have power and influence let's work let's work together Oh, absolutely. And deferring the responsibility to the church leaders for the care of the people so that the people who were just excessively rich, which was normal at that time period, could maintain their excessive lifestyle and never have to actually do any work because mm. the Christians were willing to do the foot washing. Yeah. So let them and we'll be over here and we'll keep the titles and we'll keep going, which is why you have this major shift yeah. in how politics happen in the Roman Empire right there at the end. And one more thing that I hear you highlighting is it's not as if there was some maniacal mastermind no. behind any of this. This was sort of human nature, trends. Mm-hmm. It's all sort of mm-hmm. understandable, not mm-hmm. a grand plan unfolding. Yes, and, and from a psych perspective, since you know that I'm really excited about stuff like that, it's people taking jobs they didn't sign up for because mm-hmm. they're good at them and they got complimented into doing things that they didn't necessarily sign up to do, mm-hmm. which is a warning to us all to yeah. not be complimented into taking jobs that we didn't want to do to begin with. Yes. Or that take us away from our mission. Mm-hmm. That has um, happened to me before. Yeah, oh yeah, I think to all of us. I think we all learned by something. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Would you do this accounting material? You're really good at numbers. No, I'd rather die, but I still said yes. Why did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> but yes, there you go. Um, competency speaks volumes, especially in a crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and it also sets precedence because mm-hmm. then it's like, well, now well, let's get the other competent person to do this. Mm-hmm. So then we get the phenomenon of responding then on the ground to theological incursion. So this is when you get the, the, all of the, the heresy Material. So you get the random leader that's teaching something bizarre or mm-hmm. teaching something that hasn't been clarified before. And then you get a, a council and you have the era of the seven ecumenical councils. This is all from um, the mid 300s with the first Council of Nicaea mm-hmm. all the way through 787 to the second Council of Nicaea. So that's, I mean, that's all the way through the fall of the Roman Empire and well mm-hmm. into the Dark Ages. This is an entire era of am- empire, geographical empire, wide get-togethers of every single major theological leader in the empire to discuss something. Hmm. And that's on how are we going to articulate ourselves on major dogmas. Mm -hmm. This is where orthodoxy is formed and codified. That's why we all still appeal to the Nicene Creed, for Mm -hmm. example. And when somebody disagrees with the Nicene Creed, everybody in the room, it's a theological leader, all goes, ugh. Because like now we're we're back to that's a big deal, Mm -hmm. right? It's a test, a test. but you also have the phenomenon of what's called Caesaropapism, which is a really big word that mm. means the the Pope being the leader, the main leader of the church, and we'll get to how that happened in a second, is also the empire's leader. Mm-hmm. This sets the precedence for later when we get to the Reformation and we have talked about the Holy Roman Empire, mm-hmm. which is the continuation of this process. And this is how the church has communicated authority. So you have your different, call it different denominations, right? With different preferences and different secondary issues that they're dealing with. They all elect bishops to represent them Mm -hmm. at these major ecumenical councils. Mm -hmm. Now who wins when bishops disagree? They're all equals. What happens when there's a major disagreement between an elected bishop and another elected bishop? What do you do? Schisms. Schisms. But in the meantime, the great schism doesn't happen until way later. It's 1054. Mm -hmm. What they decided to do was to say together, you have these leaders, these patriarchs, and then you have the Pope in Rome. 
and the Pope gets to be the tiebreaker because the Roman Church is the largest. I see. Okay. <laughs> so that he was referred to as first among equals. Wow. Yep, that's the, that's the phrase, and you'll still hear that come up. Yeah, I want to be that. Yep, first among <laughs> equals. Well, get this. Wouldn't you know it, human nature also uh-huh. hears that and thinks, I want to be that too. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so what happens by the time we get to 1054, through all of this mess and all of these different so- social dynamics and political dynamics, you get to 1054, and functionally what's happening is a debate between all of the patriarchs and Rome. And the Roman patriarch says, you guys have taken way too long determining how to handle this major issue theologically. Mm-hmm. We all actually agree on how to handle this. Mm-hmm. You just won't pull the trigger because you don't want to because of the political stuff that's going on in your churches. Mm-hmm. And it'll affect you and mm-hmm. your reputation. The rest of the patriarchs said, it doesn't matter. We have to have a unanimous decision before we move forward. So there's nothing you can do. You just have to wait. And Rome says... No, we're first among equals for a reason. Mm-hmm. We inherited, we were based upon Peter's, upon this rock I will build my church. Mm-hmm. Like Christ himself references us, mm-hmm. right? You can hear the ego coming out, right? Mm. Christ himself references us and you guys are dragging your feet. You are guilty of the sin of indolence, which is the sin of neglect on something that you should be moving forward on for the sake of the people. And the rest of the patriarchs said, you are guilty of arrogance, outrageous arrogance. We all agreed that we would make a unanimous decision before we moved forward at any point in time, and you're just doing whatever you want. Mm. And that's the great schism. That's 1054. Mm. It has almost nothing to do with theology at all. Mm. It's all a power play. power. Which is one of the reasons why it's still a sore point, Mm. is when we get dealing with Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism and who do we communicate with and who do we fellowship with and where do we side? Mm-hmm. Well, you can't make that decision unless you understand the politics of the age because mm. it wasn't a theological disagreement. They tried to pin some of it on icons and stuff like that, didn't they? But it wasn't oh, really sure. about that. Oh, sure, mm-hmm. sure. And the, But iconography wasn't even under question. It was mm-hmm. like, well, you guys have been really loose about a ton of things. Mm-hmm. You know, well, you guys have been really arrogant about a ton of things over there. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what happens. So where so, does it go from there? Where it goes from there is moving into the dark ages, right? This is the series of, well, now what do we do? Rome. We're going to leave Eastern Orthodoxy alone for our discussion because they do their own thing in their own part of the uh, part of the world. And they end up communing with the Protestants anyway. Like, yeah, we know we've had this problem with Rome since the beginning, you know, but over here with the Western empire, we're going to deal with Rome and what they did. And functionally what they did was say, okay, now we're going to start really clarifying dogmas fast. Mm -hmm. And the person who's going to do that is the religious leader, one guy, Mm. right? And his cohort. And automatically when you have one guy who's has a lot of power mm-hmm. and he's got a bunch of cohorts, he can form an echo chamber fast. And that's sure. normally it happens. This is where you get the series of what are called the bad popes that lead us up to the Reformation. Um, these are the fun guys. These are the guys that are like the cadaver synod in the eighth century. This is when they exhumed a previous pope, um, his body, dressed him up in his papal vestments, and then had a trial over his corpse. Um, in order to unseat him as the true pope so that a different guy who wanted the papacy for his own sake for monetary purposes effectively Mm -hmm. could then take over and say, no, actually, I should have been elected even though I wasn't by the cardinals who are these guys that are Mm -hmm. in charge underneath the pope. Um, And so you have these bizarre cases. You have Pope Joan, for example, the the woman who dressed up as a man and proceeded to get enough power and prestige that um, got to move up through the ranks. You have the buying and selling of the papacy that's all the way through with yeah, yeah the, Medici, the Medicis thing. and um, Borgias, which you can uh, they're, they're now shows on Netflix you can watch right yeah I've seen them I want to do um, a whole like extra series just on these popes like a podcast it is that is <laughs> salacious oh my gosh yeah. it is it is like like well, the world right now has nothing sounds on like something out of the book of doing. judges oh my <laughs> word yes well on the podcast last season you and I talked about simony quite a bit. This is like simony writ large. This is so yes, grand simony. And the charges that the, the corpse got brought up on were simony charges. Uh, and he was defingered and then tossed in the Tiber River as uh, as judgment. The yes, corpse was the corpse was yes. So publicly, they could see that he had been desecrated. He didn't know it, but well, yeah, I probably <laughs> no, 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 that no. Man. He was in heaven, like what? <laughs> 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 but through all this came also. 
sorry. I just had a mental image of, of yeah. that. Uh, it was like it was like a Far Side comic uh, yeah. that I saw. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I love those. Keep going, please. I love those. I think but, Josh sees much of the world through the lenses of a Far Side I do. comic. I do, actually. Yeah. That's like, do you remember Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy? Okay, so I see the world in Deep Thoughts by Jack. Like, it just, ha- it just passes through my mind quietly, yeah. Um, but yeah, there. I mean, there are tons of these really awful, awful stories that are clearly coercive. There's no interest in theology whatsoever. It all has to do with money and building, amassing wealth. Uh-huh. Um, and on top of this, during this time period, was three major plagues that went through Europe and wiped mm. out one third of its population. Mm. And out of that scare and out of the loss of, because you have to remember when the empire fell, Um, We lost a lot of access to information and functionally what happened was all of the monastic groups were the they preserved in their monastic tradition um, All of the ancient material, which is why illuminated manuscripts are so beautiful and so Mm -hmm. striking and they spent so much time It was to preserve languages that had been lost that people weren't using because they were trying to eat. Yeah You know, it's not again. This is not like some massive we're purposely trying to keep information from people It's just you don't have time when you're starving to death to study theology, right? So that's what happened and then on top of that everybody's dying. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean? Well Mm -hmm. when you have a coercive Pope that wants to control people and get more money He can very easily say this is God's judgment on us Mm -hmm. We need you to tithe more in order to make him happy. And if you can't have access to the scriptures because you can't read because you never learned because you're starving, you have no framework by which to say that's not not true. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened over Mm -hmm. these centuries is the scriptures got removed completely, even from monastic teachings. They were too busy preserving manuscripts. You could spend your entire career as a monk and never once see a New Testament. That's what happened with Martin Luther. Really? That was why it was such a big deal, why his conversion was so shocking was because he was an Augustinian monk. Mm. And the Augustinian order was the most strict. And so his friar watching him collapse emotionally and psychologically in his cell over what was going on in the world said, you just need, you need Jesus. You haven't, you're, mm. you haven't talked to Jesus in forever. Like mm. you just need him. And it's like, well, where do I get him? Well, you need a new Testament. Well, do we have one of those? Nope, you're gonna have to go to Rome, go get one. I kid you not, spent his whole That's career. so hard for me to even fathom. But he comes back like... This is something entirely different. <laughs> uh, did you all know that this was a thing? Nope, uh-huh. we didn't. You know, so this, this is a beautiful moment. But it's also, yes, they, the whole point was that he met Jesus. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, so much of this just sounds... It's like a soap opera. It's like, mm-hmm. it just seems so messed up. But then you realize... They didn't even have access to scripture. What was their anchor even to be? And then to have access to lots of power, lots of money, lots of influence, lots of prestige, and not have access to scripture is a that's a dangerous cocktail. Very, very dangerous. And from there came the major dogmas that come up in the Reformation as a problem. So dogmas yeah. are teachings in the church that you are not permitted to take issue with or or miss out on or not believe personally the in Roman Catholicism, correct. The non-negotiable, meaning there's, this isn't a debate. It's brought down from above. Mm-hmm. And the biggest one for Luther was what's called unigenitus. And unigenitus was the belief that predicated on first that the Pope is infallible. He receives revelation directly from God and whatever he says is functionally the Lord speaking. So that happened in the 1300s, right? Followed by Unigenitus, which said that the Pope controls a treasury of indulgences, which indulgence means a blessing that removes the amount of time that you have to suffer in purgatory for whatever you've done on earth. Mm -hmm. He controls it and can hand it out at will. He can decide how many years to take off of your your plight. And that's predicated on the other dogma that purgatory exists. And purgatory is a tank. It's a holding ground that's in between earth and heaven where Christians, good, good good Roman Catholics, go in order to suffer through all of the things they need to suffer through in order to make atonement before they enter heaven. To be purged. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, to be purified. They would say purified. 
Um, and that came as a direct result of the bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. How are we going to atone for the? Obviously, the Lord is very upset with us. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we wouldn't all be dying. And so, obviously, we need to be we need to be working on pray, pray, being more prayerful. How can He hear us more if we're so broken? Mm-hmm. Well, pray to the saints, the people who have been more holy than you. Mm-hmm. This is where all of those frameworks come from. It's a direct result of the bubonic plague mm-hmm. and the, the popes that led to the dogmas that taught these things. Mm-hmm that finally moved to unigenitus is the main thing we need to be focused on because people need in order as an as a motivational point for their lives to move through the sacramental system sacraments being that you get baptized mm-hmm. that you're taking communion on a regular basis that you get married that you go through confirmation there are like major steps in the life of a christian that you need to move through And on top of that, you can pray on behalf of your family members who may not have done this and pay for access to indulgences to get them out of purgatory faster. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that must be how this works. Mm -hmm. And so that framework started a positive feedback loop that began funding the papacy. It's how St. Peter's Basilica was built. Mm -hmm. And just if I could push pause real quick, because um, we just shot another podcast and and uh, a lot of conversation was happening around... um, biblical literacy or the lack of it and just i just want to something that's just striking me right now um in both of the conversations about that today that that we've had uh, are i see to a lesser extent but some real commonality between what you were saying around the average person not knowing the bible or even having access to it and i think what's happened really over the last i don't know 10 or 20 years even here in the bible belt in the church like the amount i think i've been really struck by the the amount of biblical illiteracy that has just built and built and built and built and built. And um, just as we're doing this series, it's making me think that that might be something the Lord wants to speak to to some people listening to this, certainly speaking to me, of the importance of getting into the Word of God. I know that's like no duh, and yet... No, but brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no. So like to to piggyback off of that, I browbeat biblical literacy, and I was praying. This is, this is part of why we do a Bible study every every fall now. It's because I was disobedient and a kicko was failing. I was literally praying. I was like, Lord, how are we going to get this? How are we going to get people to read their Bibles? How are we going to get people to read their Bibles? Mm-hmm. I was like, well, they need to be leading Bible studies. And the Lord was like, right, just like the Bible study you're leading. <laughs> the apologist isn't <laughs> leading a Bible study. I mean, that's that's a reflection on like how serious are we? And so that's part of why we do an in-depth expository only Bible study here in the fall is so that I can face the Lord and say, I heard you. Mm-hmm. It's not a performance thing. It's, it's no, you're right. Like I, I absolutely need to be doing this. Me personally, not just leading one, but yeah, everybody. studying. Everybody, yeah. not just the leaders. Like I've been really encouraged hearing Aaron talk recently. He's got a whole series of guys you're just reading the Bible with right now, right? And yeah. I think, man, let's start with our pastors and some of the leaders, but certainly all of us getting involved in a Bible study. Um, that's, that's such a simple thing. But mm-hmm. yeah, just 500 years ago, that was what Martin Luther, he was exposed to the word of God and a reformation took place. Correct. Mm. Correct. That's literally true. He had never, he's been his, his entire adult career as an Augustinian monk. Yeah. And had I, never once read a New Testament. Because, you, you know, I've been, I, I love thinking about movements and reformations and revivals. And that's a lot of what we're talking about in this series. And a lot of what I hear and people that talk about those things is, you know, prayer and they talk about repentance and a lot of things and all those are true but i don't think i hear as much just exposure to the word of god and letting it do its work i mean Mm -hmm. that's a powerful component of things we're talking about Mm -hmm. yeah amen and developing a love for scripture too Mm. and and yeah and learning how to read it and, and you know having not just having access but having guides trusted guides to walk with you through it yeah and the knowledge that you don't need a trusted guide, even though it's wonderful, but that you can go straight to Christ yourself. Yeah. Because that's yeah, something that's right. that people miss. Like, yeah. oh, I need somebody smarter. I need somebody more holy. I need somebody more Christian than me. No, you do not. Yep. Mm-hmm. You can be on a desert island with Jesus on your own. You'll be just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, so that was a little side, sorry, that was a little side, side trail, but uh, you, were, you, you, you got right up to like when we kind of officially think about the, uh, the Protestant Reformation kicking off. Yes. So, yeah. yeah, keep yes. going. <laughs> and so we had, so through this era, Right, we have all those things developing, and then we have the the rebels, the guys that are actually up in the ranks through this mm. process. Going, 
uh, this is clearly wrong. Mm-hmm. What this is clearly wrong. We should not be doing this. And they start preaching in their home church, and there will be, you know, a couple of them are traveling evangelists, um, and the church, the Roman Catholic authorities would come in and kill them. Mm-hmm. So all the way through, you have these moments of, nope, this isn't, this is like clearly a problem. Mm-hmm. This, we should not have, this has never been this way ever. And they're executed almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are guys like um, um, Savonorla, something like that. I can't mm-hmm. remember how to pronounce it, but he was, he was one of the first big traveling preachers who went from congregation to congregation to be like, hey guys, this is not how this is supposed to go. Mm-hmm. Like, do not fall for this. And mm-hmm. he was killed almost immediately. Um, you have um, John Huss, mm-hmm. who's one of my heroes. I adore this man. Same thing. He moved through major movements um, that, that come in and get squashed almost immediately. This would be like 13, 1400s? This is 1400s is John yep. Huss. Okay. But yeah, 13, 1400s is what I'm talking about. The, mm-hmm. the pre-Reformation, the glimmers of something, something has to happen. Kind of the or first fruits of what here. was coming with Luther. Yes, and the reference points for what Luther goes back and goes, hold up, mm-hmm. we've had somebody in every single era, major player, try to call attention to this and mm-hmm. they kill him which mm-hmm. was a major point when part of his part of his treatises that he put out like we can't be doing this this is mm-hmm. this is clearly a control of information problem mm-hmm. um anyway you get you get all these guys Wycliffe is another one mm-hmm. right Wycliffe is famous everybody knows that um you get the Lollards the Cathars the Waldensians these are these are big names these are just movements of people that just don't last very long mm-hmm. um and then you get to Martin Luther yeah, and just before you get to Martin Luther, I just think it's important because I, I think just people don't realize how like how many people God used to help pave the way for a guy like Luther. Yes. I mean, Luther is the poster child for the Reformation. Yes, but, but there he are, never saw himself as that. Yeah, well, but the, yeah, I just think it's so fascinating that there are, not nameless, but some of them, uh, but definitely much less well-known people, many of which were killed, mm-hmm. that God used to pave the way for this great Reformation that, that was, you know... And it's primarily for that reason, too, that the the cardinals in the Holy Roman Empire, so the Roman Empire got taken, kind of got dissolved, and then um, subsumed into Europe as the control centers moved into Europe, Mm -hmm. um, because we had the the problem with the the Muslim conquest, Mm -hmm. right? So they came in, so Islam controlled the vast majority of the ancient world that was Christian, and now the Christianity has focused in Europe. And so now we've got the Holy Roman Empire, which is the unity of Europe and Christianity. The Ottoman Empire would have Mm -hmm. crept in on the other side. Correct, correct, Mm -hmm. correct. And then how are we politically dealing with all those wars? Mm -hmm. This is where you get crusades. This is where you get Mm -hmm. disvolved, the the Latin call to arms that the Pope Mm -hmm. can call anybody in. Now you get fiefdoms, right, starting. Mm -hmm. Little fiefdoms, which Mm -hmm. are control points that are headed up by some type of monarch or soon-to-be monarch that... He controls a group of people, and what where what he determines theologically, where he sits, also determines the theology of the area. Mm-hmm. And you're expected to be subsumed in that theology, regardless of how you feel personally. Mm-hmm. Which was another point of the Protestant Reformation is to say those are individual decisions. You can't mm-hmm. determine that for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to throw in too, as you as we're hearing this, um, especially if a lot of this is new information to you, you might be going, "This is this is really icky," and 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 you might think. What what a poor reflection of Christ and how did how did his church end up in such a state? And um I will say this, it's a poor reflection of Christ in the sense that the positionally, like the roles that were held by these people. But what emerged from those these icky things that are being highlighted is not the fruit of people walking with Jesus. Mm-hmm. It was the fruit of people being overcome with and obsessed with power and the desire to consolidate and contain and con- that power and to eliminate any threat you know like what's the expression power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely mm-hmm. um and then we say well where was jesus in this well where is Je-? that you were starting to hit that there are these people who actually do walk with jesus and see the beauty and the power of scripture and that's what's leading up to it so there was there was I guess in some sense a remnant, right, of people who are oh, holding on absolutely. Um, along the way, even while the the structure, the the sort of capital C church was like, in some sense, really had really lost the plot. And so people in 21st century that might be listening to this podcast be encouraged because 
what you just pointed out is absolutely true in our day. We look around and say, that's what it means to be Christian. And we look at, yeah. all, you know, all the, the factions of people that call themselves Christians today. And mm-hmm. many of which are, I don't know, I want to throw, I throw up in my mouth a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the name of Jesus doing certain things that's been happening for a long time. And yet God has had, as you put it, a remnant, uh, there has been light shining in the darkness always. And that's still the case today. Mm-hmm. That's encouraging. To look back at history and see the same thing happen. That's right, and that it, it, the Reformation would not have been successful had that not been the case. Mm. It's yeah. just that the true Christians were the people doing the work on the ground. They they weren't the fancy people mm. up wearing the fancy hats and the pink shoes and yeah. all that stuff. And that's when when Luther kind of reaches in and grits his teeth and closes his eyes and he yanks out that that hinge pin. Suddenly, mm. the the oppressed are freed, and you see all of these denominations erupt, mm. right? All of the personal preferences come out. You mean we can stop doing this crap over here? You mean we can opt to do this differently over here? It's like, yes, you you are free. It's Christian mm. liberty. Here's the Bible again. Mm. That's that's why it was so successful and why it's such a shock to the system mm. theologically in Europe. Yeah, the Bible was unleashed. The Bible was unleashed to do its thing. The Bible doesn't uh, doesn't stifle creativity or anything. It, 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 it draws out beautiful components uh-huh. of culture and civilization. Yeah. Uh, but yet it gives it an anchor in Jesus, yeah. right? Yeah. It's almost like it's a body and the body has many members. <laughs> Somebody said that. Who was that? Fun. Who was that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of, I think it was Spurgeon who said the, the Bible's like a tiger. If you let it out of its cage, it'll defend itself. Yep. Mm. <laughs> it'll take care of itself. That's correct. And it had been caged. So, all right, we, we, we interrupted you and, you, and I think you were Why just getting to the good news. We just got well, we're only <laughs> just to the Reformation now. So, you, but you understand the kind of the 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 complicated nature, right? There's a gnarly nature to this. There, there are a lot of things at play, and it's a, a lot of it's contingent upon how the politics of the area were going to go and how much these people had to lose power wise to side with Luther. Because you'll notice as you move through, if you if you read about kind of the arguments that are passing through, the the Roman Catholic arguments are not good. And I don't mean that because I'm being highly critical of Roman Catholicism, and I am. So you can clearly see I'm biased as a Lutheran, but everybody knows that. So you can kind of take that <laughs> take that and assess as you will. But if you look at the physical arguments, the arguments are not theological normally. It's this is what the Pope has said in X century combined mm-hmm. with this is what the Pope has said in this century mm-hmm. equals shut up. And this is what's required to... <laughs> maintain consolidated power how dare you equals. yes yes yeah. look at all this this is this is infrastructure do you want the holy roman empire to fall mm. we've just dealt with that you want to plunge us into another dark ages wow and it's like yes i'm willing to plunge us into another dark ages if it means the truth that didn't happen mm. right mm. we had the renaissance uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> we had um some of the greatest um monarchies the world has ever seen as a direct result right that's elizabeth mm. I in england Mm. Um, I mean, just incredible stuff happens after this, but they didn't know that at the time. Right. Right. There was a lot of fear and a lot sure. of like, ooh, do I really want to do this? Um, and so we get to Luther and Luther was an attorney for the for mm. the whole of his young life. Mm. And he was on his way home and got caught in a really nasty lightning storm. And the story goes, and he says this quite clearly, that the story went that I, I promised God I would become a monk if he would just keep me alive. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready to die. I didn't want to go to purgatory. Mm-hmm. I was not ready. Um, and the Lord got him home, and he, he was good to his word, and he went and became a monk. Mm-hmm. And not just any monk, he became like the monkiest of monks. <laughs> like he really honored his word, and that's the best he could do. And mm-hmm. to, the, to the chagrin of his family, his family was very upset at him because mm-hmm. he had this lucrative attorney yeah. position. Um, so he becomes a monk and is terrible at it. One of the things that um, he, you have to give your first mass as, a, as when you get your priesthood for the first for the first time, and you have to remember at this time um, the lay people were not allowed to take the wine in communion. You were only allowed the bread, hmm. and that was because through the centuries it had become established through papal decree after papal decree that the the, the blood was too sacred to spill even a drop. And because we were dealing with the Eucharist in terms of transubstantiation, the Eucharist right. being communion, transubstantiation, meaning that the communion actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus um, miraculously inside of you, then extrapolating from that, if you were to spill any of it, that's, that's you just mm. wasted power, like the miraculous, the power, mm. the blood of Christ once it's blessed. Mm. Um, so that was a big deal. You can never spill any. Um, and, Luther was so nervous. He was shaking so badly at the at the the majesty of this moment. He was mm-hmm. so serious about the God with whom he was engaging because mm-hmm. he was terrified of him. 
Mm-hmm. Like that's how he explains it. Um, he shook so badly that the wine spilled all over him mm-hmm. and his family was there to watch. And it's this big moment because he's like the worst priest that ever was. <laughs> and they were, they were stuck with him. So he mm-hmm. goes off to be cloistered. Um, cloistering is in monastic tradition. There are little tiny cells in an abbot um, or an abbey. And the abbot is the head of the abbey. An abbey is a giant like cathedral type space with dormitories. The mm-hmm. dormitories are very small. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine you're, you're, your average guest bathroom size. Um, And that was where you lived. And you would do whatever was necessary for the monastic um, rites that were there, either preservation of manuscripts, um, development of agriculture for the area. So you'd keep bees, um, you would plant, you'd have gardens, and but you would take care of the poor and you were responsible for for taking the almsgivings, which is the the helping the impoverished, um, tithing things like that, collecting tithe, and then um, meditating, spending your entire life meditating on the Lord. Mm -hmm. Um, Incredible lifestyle. Mm. Um, And this is the preservation of the ancient knowledge. This is Mm. the only reason why we have all this stuff is because of the work that they did to preserve it. Because it was all by hand that they're- Mm -hmm. But for Luther doing this without the word of God, Interesting. And uh, a very, you know, he struggled so much with this works-based uh, mentality of pre, pre-discovery of the Bible. And so, yes, and oh, so what, a, what a horrible way to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, Constantly meditating. He went from, I'm scared of you to how could you possibly be good? Mm. I'm terrified of you. There's no pleasing you. Mm-hmm. We can never get good enough. I'm sitting all the time. I can't even make it through a prayer without sitting. If I'm, mm-hmm. He was so serious mm-hmm. that he was functionally giving himself complex PTSD in a cell. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where the other monks couldn't sleep because he was praying all night and they could mm-hmm. hear him. Mm-hmm. And they were like, knock it off. We need some sleep. And he's, mm-hmm. he couldn't because he didn't want to go to hell. Mm-hmm. And so his, the, his lead, a wonderful man whose name escapes me right now, um, said, that's it. You need Jesus. You, you, you're struggling with Satan too much. This mm-hmm. is too far. Nobody can handle you. I'm sending you to Rome on pilgrimage, which he did not want to do. So I'm sending you to Rome. You're going to deal with scarier. this. Yep. And you're going to go, you're going to get access to what you need, bring back what you need to be able to study and go and, and pilgrimage to these amazing sites in Rome. Mm-hmm. Cause this is, this is where everything but is going sh- down. He was shocked at what he saw when he got there. Huh? Worst, <laughs> most wonderful, but worst mistake uh, this monk could have done is go and see Rome at this yeah. point in time. He was appalled. Rome was one of the nastiest places to be yeah. in this period in history. And you know what's fascinating? Just quick side note. It, I mean, this would have been right after, like, Michelangelo painted the roof of the 16th. So some of the things that we most celebrate in Western culture are probably as a result of money from indulgences and some of the things Luther oh, encountered. Oh, absolutely. And the <laughs> preservation. So there was, a, there was a saying back then, which was ad fontes, which was part of the, the movement of philosophy at the time period to get back to some of the higher thinking mm-hmm. that we hadn't been able to, to focus on because nobody, we, we've now so have enough infrastructure. Yep, yep, yeah. we now can eat regularly. So mm-hmm. let's go back to dealing with some of the philosophical questions that we had. And ad fontes meant back to the sources. Mm-hmm. And so the the preservation specifically of these core things we need to study Plato, Aristotle, things mm-hmm. were being rediscovered and they're like, oh great, this helps a lot. Medicine, mm-hmm. you know, that's yeah. that's part of the Renaissance. And so just another quick thing, sorry, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, so, so some of the things we most celebrate in Western culture were bought and paid for mm-hmm. by corruption within. Mm-hmm. And manipulation of the people of God and control of these elements, because if they could say that you received a blessing by making physical contact with them, and then you controlled where you, that you made physical contact with this specific item, then you could charge money for access points, which is why you have pilgrimage sites that people were regularly circulating all the way through their lifetime mm-hmm. to get the blessing, to get whoever sinned out of purgatory and themselves and to get letters of, of, of writ to be able to travel and do the next one. Which sounds ludicrous, but if you have no access to the scriptures, mm-hmm. if you don't have any framework for grace, then it's entirely plausible. you know. And especially, I mean, we're talking about largely uneducated people who are just kind of getting past the survival stage of life mm-hmm. uh, or of their society. Um, I just want to point out one thing. This rewinds us a little bit, but I, I just my mind keeps spinning on this idea when you're painting the picture of the life of a monk. And I was thinking of a, it's a, an Elizabeth Kubler-Ross quote that we shared a couple of weeks ago at church, or I guess several weeks ago, um, about how ultimately everything boils down emotionally to either love or fear. 
and you were explaining the life of a monk, and I was thinking about it through the lenses of love, of gratitude, of preservation of the beauty of what of God's work, and and I thought, what a wonderful, beautiful, remarkable way to live. And then I thought about it through the lenses of how Martin Luther was approaching it, which was pure fear. And I thought that's literally hell on earth. And the contrast, same circumstances, but the intent. Is it fueled by love or is it fueled by fear? And when it's fear, it's pure hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And Martin Luther would go on to write. Like he, well, I know you're getting there, so I don't want to over. No, no, but you're good. He, uh, one of my favorite hymns, "A Mighty Fortress Is Our God." Mm. Right? Ein feste Berg ist unser Gott. Yes, that too. I assume that's the German. That part. is. That is. And uh, yeah, but just seeing God through a lens of fear to seeing Him as our mighty fortress. Yes. Uh, wow, yes. that's really beautiful. From yeah. the sa- God became the greatest threat to Him to the ultimate safety. Oh man, for him. come on. And yeah. you know why He did that, right? was to take a German, a very famous and ancient German beer drinking song. That was a bar song. That it melody. Sounds like, oh, mighty it that is. is a that is a tankard <laughs> clanging song. <laughs> and he was like, This belongs to Jesus now. Oh, that's and interesting. And wrote some of Come the on. most incredible lyrics and beautiful lyrics. Mm. Yes, he took a German beer drinking song and turned it into one of the most famous hymns for oh, Lutherans. Anyway. Yes. Okay, so Martin Luther is fearful to the point of breakdown. Yes. Gets sent to Rome. Gets sent to Rome yeah. and proceeds to witness all of the major players in Rome using brothels designed specifically for monks. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that was one of the first things he encountered. Um, to the selling of indulgences. Now remember the indulgence aspect is a token that you get if you do the work of putting money toward the church to church mm-hmm. church ends voluntarily mm-hmm. in in payment for that faith and that 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 love offering, you get time off in purgatory. Mm-hmm. And however much money you put in ups your ability to get more time off. And if you do certain tasks in Rome, you can get entire family members out of purgatory in one go. So you can make this as, I mean, you only, you'd only have so much time on pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. So if you pray, um, and our father and a hail Mary, which is a very specific type of prayer that's, that's punctuated and relatively short on every single step of, um, the steps of the Lateran, for example, by the time you get to the top stair, the monk will kiss you at the top and you can, whoever you wanted to be sprung from purgatory can be sprung. So you can get grandma out, Mm -hmm. but maybe not grandpa that day. Mm-hmm. You don't want to kiss him right after you got out of the brothel either. I was, no, yeah. probably, probably not. <laughs> but then the amount of carts that were so that were surreal. set up, it is. It's it's, yeah. and they and they would sell little bracelets and trinkets, and they had, as as Luther would end up saying, they had more nails from the cross of Christ than there mm. were horses in Saxony to shoe. Mm. Like it's not possible that these are all nails mm. from the crucifixion, and sure. yet people are buying them in order, and they're sure. taking them, and they're taking them home. And this is helping me. And and if that was my theological worldview, and I was poor, uneducated, and manipulated, I would do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Who wouldn't? How? Yeah. How could you not? You could pre-buy for your child, for example, who could <sighs> not pilgrimage. Your child is crippled. You could then pre-buy what they needed to make it out of purgatory because they would never be able to move through the sacraments like somebody who's able-bodied. But you had to do that work. Oh and that meant goodness. that you had to take more time in purgatory for yourself on behalf so that you could let your child go. Hmm. Uh, again, how could you not do again, all those things? Again, it's fear-based Christianity. Isn't Very, it? Much. Yeah. Uh, Very much. Or it's just fear-based. <laughs> Sure, how much it resembles well, yeah. Christianity. Posing as Christianity. I say, yeah. yeah, I mean, because I, 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 so much of what you're saying, what you're describing, I'm just like, ooh, there's versions of that today. <laughs> there, yeah. there, there absolutely are. Yeah. Which is part of why I, part of the topics that we pick mm. for Russia Christie nights sometimes have to do with where we try to always pick anticipatory topics, things that I think are going to dial up rather than down so that at the very least our people go out and go, this isn't the first time I've heard this. Somebody volunteered to do this work and then hopefully has given me enough tools to navigate a little bit. I can't do anything exhaustively, but that's part of why we pick the topics that we do. Mm. It's based on the level of questions that are coming in. Like, is this really a problem? You know, like, yeah. So, um, 
lots of this is happening. Um, you've got bones of saints that can grant certain things. You have, if you can go kiss the head of John the Baptist over here, then you can get time off. But the other head of John the Baptist over there gives more time off. So which one do you do? Because oh you can't tell. Do we do both just to make sure that you're oh fulfilled? You know what I mean? This is all very rational, mm. right? Um, 18 out of 12 apostles are buried in Spain. Um, so do we go to Spain on our, on our sabbaticals? Oh. Because that, I mean, that's primarily mm-hmm. Ottoman controlled. So that's really dangerous, but that's mm-hmm. the only way you're going to get access to those bones. You get the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he comes back with a new Testament mm-hmm. and with, you would not believe what I saw. Like we, I went to the place that is supposed to be the most sacred in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have access to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. This is the access point that's the only one we get, and it is a cesspool. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was so burdened by it, he threw himself into the New Testament because that was the only thing he assumed he could do, and that's what his guide had told him to do. Mm -hmm. And he came out studying theology. Mm-hmm. How did this happen? Now he's pulling canon law, and he's how does this comport with what Jesus says here? How mm-hmm. could we possibly teach this mm-hmm. if this is what Jesus says over here? What do you mean the rock upon which Peter built, or the rock is Peter, upon which Christ is building his church, mm-hmm. is actually Peter? Because grammatically, it's Peter's confession mm. that you are the Christ. Mm. It isn't. Peter as a person. Mm, it's a declaration that Christ is king. So are you saying mm-hmm. the entire, yeah, the predicated aspect to papal infallibility that you're a direct descendant from Peter now is up for debate, looks like it. Mm-hmm. And then he became impossible to talk to with the rest of the monks. So they sent him to teach in Wittenberg. Mm-hmm. Wittenberg was a school university and he went and he got his doctoral degree and started teaching theology to students who wanted to study Theology and potentially and we should add that he's just especially brilliant. Very For smart. all of the what we saw, sort of the emotional fragility leading up to it, mm-hmm. he's a towering intellect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Very even if he so. also came back and, you know, I, I just wonder how much he would have been exposed to people like Huss uh, prior to going to Rome. And he then, references Huss. I don't know when he was exposed to him. I'm just I just wonder if remember. he came back and he was like, is anybody else seeing this? Is anybody else thinking mm. like, like uh, especially in light of, at the same time, starting to read the New Testament and then remembering everything he just saw in Rome, I would imagine he's like, am I am I the only crazy one out there? He references Huss during his trial, yeah. his initial trial where he is having to, to, to justify his writings. So it was fairly rapid. If it wasn't immediately after Rome, it was right there. It's also, it's just making me think also that if, if you're ever exposed to religious manipulation and think you're crazy... I think there are always others out there that, that there are people that will that you can talk to. Uh, that's a whole other side note, but I know you've dealt with folks that have come out of backgrounds and cults and things like that. And mm-hmm. uh, I just imagine Luther must have thought, "I'm on an island here," and then he mm-hmm. realized, "Oh, I'm not." The, mm-hmm. You know, and well, and that's must have been. that's mm-hmm. what happened when he started teaching his classes. Is he started weaving in all the people that you weren't supposed to talk about, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he became a, a very well known and beloved professor mm-hmm. in Germany. And this is where the the, the Holy Roman em- Emperor had just been elected. That's Charles the Seventh, I think. Um, but now this is pre Charles the Fifth. Excuse me. Is before or after posting the ninety five thesis. So this is before. Okay. We haven't gotten to the 95 Thesis yet. Sorry. Almost. We're almost there. Stole your thunder. <laughs> no, no, you're good. You're good. This is where he's building his, his um, all of the things that he wrote that he gets really in trouble for. Mm-hmm. Um, he starts writing curriculum for his students and is like, here's what you're missing. Here's what we should be studying. Because again, none. Of, it wasn't like the New Testament was banned. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't accessible. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm going to make it accessible. Mm. I'm going to be teaching this. I'm going to be teaching this problem. This is coercion. And wouldn't you see, look at all of these other teachers through the centuries who have been saying exactly the same yes. thing. And they were all part of the church too. This is a tradition in the church. Mm. Did he start to translate into German? After, yeah, after, in between his trial. Okay. So yes, this, that was, and that was the fight. That was the coup So he believed gras. in it so much that he, he said, hey, he said, everybody I, needs to have it in their life. vernacular. Yep, yeah, this is worth my life. Because the, the, you did not translate the scriptures into, mm. into the actual language of the people. You kept it in High Latin, mm. which is what it was. Mm-hmm. And that's only, the only people who read High Latin were the monks and the priests. Because you mm-hmm. had to, because all of mass was given in Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that, again, wasn't originally designed as a control tactic. It was because that was the language in right. Rome. It was Latin, and you just kind of stayed through. Franco, and it became one. It did. The empire mm-hmm. fell. wasn't the intent. Yeah. The only people who spoke Latin were the people who controlled the information. It was all written in Latin, so it stayed that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so he started teaching. Here's what's going on. Here's how you read this. Here's how you read that. And functionally, he taught an apologetics class. And mm-hmm. it was, here's what you need to know. Do you really want to become a monk? Like, do you really want to become a priest? Like, do you mm-hmm. want to just want to study theology? How can we move forward? How can we serve our people better? Here's how we can wash feet. And he was mm-hmm. beloved in the area. Everyone loved him. And his classes went through the roof because people were, people were traveling to take to do lectures with him. He was like Jordan Peterson, 1500s. <laughs> that kind of, the, the public John intellect. John Wimber, early 80s at Fulham. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of MC five hundred one. Okay, yeah, so there you go. Class. There yeah. you go with people traveling Somewhere. to listen to you lecture mm-hmm. on something nerdy, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like wow, just a real charisma. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. He was fun to listen to. Mm-hmm. Very. He was willing to crack jokes. If you read Luther, he's even almost hard to listen to sometimes because his jokes are like, wow, did he say that out loud? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it must have been refreshing because I mean, of, of the weight of the the type of Catholicism that mm-hmm. had been around for, you know all of those people's whole lives and then to hear things like mm-hmm. the book of Galatians taught in a way that's engaging and, mm-hmm. and the freedom yeah. and all this kind of stuff I can't imagine talk about thirsty souls I yeah. mean, there's just sincere people who but they're, they just don't have access to, the, to it, the living water it reminds me of like I had friends that grew up in like you know you've heard of the term the, the fire and brimstone type churches and teaching mm-hmm. and th- literally the 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 weight of man just my conversations with some of my friends i remember like in high school and, and they 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 thought like luther did they were terrified of god and uh yeah i can imagine the people in that time feeling that way luther felt that way and then all of a sudden when he starts teaching this it makes perfect sense for people to be traveling miles and miles and miles to come and, and study under him <laughs>